You are listening to the Krika Lecture Series podcast, produced by the Center for Russia, East Europe, and Central Asia at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. This and other Krika podcasts are available on SoundCloud and iTunes. For more information about Krika's lecture series and public events, visit our website at krika.wisc.edu. Our speaker today, it's a delight to have him on campus. He's, his name is Martin Nekola. Um, his PhD is from Charles University in Prague and a political scientist, but he's also a historian. And one of the main focuses of his research is on Czech immigration, and in particular to the United States. He has a new book that looks beautiful, but is only in Czech. Um, and we have it here. It's called Czeske Chicago, right? It's about immigration to Chicago. Um, and he told me at lunch that he's, uh, he's contracted or agreed to write a book about Czech New York. And uh, Martin has also written uh, hundreds of articles on a variety of topics. He, he's written uh, many books as well. His, one of his latest books is about Petr Zenko, called Politik Cholowiak, Politician and Man from 2014. And today, he's going to talk about Czechoslovak exile after 1948. Thank you, Martin. Good afternoon. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, it's a great pleasure to be here, and uh, thank you for having me. Uh, it's my first time in Wisconsin, and uh, I'm looking forward to establish further cooperation with Krika uh, on various projects uh, dealing with modern uh, Central European history and to meet uh, your scholars and your students. Uh, I already had a lunch with uh, Matthew Green in, in Prague a few weeks ago. Uh, to introduce myself very uh, briefly, I am a political scientist and historian. Uh, I live in Prague. As uh, Dr. Danaher mentioned, my main research uh, uh, focus is the Cold War migration, not only from Czechoslovakia, but from the entire Central Eastern European region. Uh, so from the countries behind the Iron Curtain uh, to Western countries, above all to the United States, but also to Canada, to Latin America, Australia, New Zealand, etc., uh, etc. Et and I'm also very interested in the history of Czech communities uh, in the U.S. Uh, therefore, I did a lot of research in um, American libraries and archives, uh, and uh, as you can see, my book on Czech Chicago has been uh, published just recently, uh, last week or two weeks ago, and uh, I'll also do some research in uh, the archives and libraries here in Madison and also in uh, Milwaukee. I'll also meet uh, the people uh, with Czech ancestors and members of the famous uh, Sokol Sport Association. Uh, and. Uh, as mentioned, I would like to prepare something similar, like Czech Chicago, uh, a book about Czech New York, Czech Cleveland, uh, Czech Madison, Czech St. Louis, and so on. So keep your fingers crossed, because surprisingly, uh, there's a lot of things written in English about these topics, but almost nothing in Czech. So I have to take care of it. Uh, now, to the topic we'll be discussing today. Uh, the anti-communist exile after 1948, after the communist coup in Czechoslovakia, and the faith of uh, Czechs abroad, who sought uh, the return of freedom and democracy uh, to their homeland, are an integral part of uh, Czech modern history. However, this phenomenon is still neglected, and uh, the general public has um, only fragmentary information about that. Uh, for me, the exile studies are a great opportunity to 
and also an unexplored field because they combine a wide range of uh, science disciplines, history, sociology, psychology, international relations, literature. Uh, each of us may do research and analyze the exile from individual perspectives and aspects. Again, since I'm a political scientist and historian, uh, I focus primarily on uh, the exile politics, uh, propaganda, relations with other national exile committees, uh, political agendas, political parties active in exile, political organizations, etc., etc. Uh, however, what does the uh, exile politics really mean? Uh, what are its manifestations? Who are its representatives? I believe the scope of uh, Czechoslovak exile politics is not clearly defined and that is something I'm trying to uh, do research on. So uh, let's get started then. I'm not sure how you define the, the terms in English, but uh, the term uh, emigration in Czech language uh, generally means the voluntary departure from homeland for economic reasons, while the exile is the departure for political, religious, ideological, moral, and other non-economic uh, reasons. So the journalist Fernand Perutka, uh, also one, one of the leading um, persons of the exile and a longtime director of the Czechoslovak desk of uh, Radio Free Europe, uh, he saw the, this distinction um, this way. I quote him. Whoever leaves the country to have a better life somewhere else is an immigrant. Who leaves, however, uh, his home because he has uh, been taken the opportunity to live freely and according to his faith is an emigre. End of quote. Of course, in reality, um, it is often difficult to separate these two groups or categories, uh, as we see in the current uh, Middle East uh, refugee situation, for example. But the modern Czech history dealt with the migration fairly often. Uh, many Czechs left uh, beginning in the second half of the 19th century to find better living conditions in uh, the United States, for example. And the political emigration or the exile resistance uh, to an oppressive uh, regime played a significant role during both uh, world wars, of course, then after the communist coup in February 48, and later after the occupation of Czechoslovakia in, in August 68. However, we also had a small group of emigres immediately after 1945. Uh, they were part of the anti-Nazi um, or anti-German exile in Great Britain, but they refused to return to liberated Czechoslovakia at the end of the war because they simply disagreed with the uh, policies of the post-war uh, National Front government and its orientation towards the, the Soviet Union. Uh, for Czechs, I would say it wasn't such a big issue as it was in the Polish case, for example, because you know that the Polish exile government remained active in Great Britain after the end of the war and formed, uh, let's say, another or parallel uh, power center, uh, parallel to the legal uh, pro-Soviet government in uh, Warsaw. Um, so, let's go to Czechoslovakia and let's make a short historical overview. On February 25th, 1948, um, uh, Czechoslovak president Edvard Beneš uh, accepted the resignation of 12 uh, democratic ministers from three democratic parties. Let me remind you that the coalition government in those times had 26 members and six only a minority resigned. The communist prime minister, uh, Clement Gottwald, had basically, basically free hands to fill out his government uh, with the members of the same parties to keep the formal distribution of power. But Logically, he chose uh, people who were uh, hidden, trying horses, obedient to the communists. 
And from this moment on, uh, the floodgates of communist oppression opened, and the first politicians, journalists, academics, uh, high government officials uh, criticizing the methods of the Reds uh, did not hesitate to flee Czechoslovakia before they could uh, be imprisoned. In this search for uh, some accurate data on this post-February exile wave, uh, we encounter very different uh, numbers and figures. Uh, the Czech researchers are still unable to uh, agree on the intensities of individual wave of waves of my emigration between 1948 and 1989. Some authors work with a very rough number, and I would say an overestimate num uh, number uh, of uh, half a million Czechs and Slovaks who left Czechoslovakia. I would say that half of this number, like 250,000, uh, is a more realistic figure. Uh, the estimate of Czechoslovak state security, the STB, at the end of 1948 um, talked about 8,614 refugees, and for the period between 1948 and 1953, so the first five years uh, after the coup, uh, state uh, security lists a total number of uh, 43,600 uh, people. Their first steps in the free world uh, brought these people into the so-called displaced person camps in western occupation zones of Germany, of Austria, or in Italy. Uh, you can see a map uh, with uh, these facilities marked. Uh, these camps were under the administration of uh, the International Refugee Organization, the IRO, uh, one of the United Nations uh, agencies based in Switzerland. And between 1947 and 1952, uh, the whole, let's say, refugee agenda in Western Europe was under the control of uh, IRO. In July 1948, uh, the IRO admitted the status of political refugees also to Czechs and Slovaks, with the same, let's say, legal protection and benefits as other prior residents of the camps. So we are talking about uh, Baltic people, Ukrainians, the Cossacks, Bulgarians, Poles, Romanians, it is forgotten act, uh, fact that um, more than 20 million people in Europe were out of their homes uh, by the end of the World War II. This included uh, former forced laborers uh, returning from Germany, expelled German minorities from Eastern Europe, and people uh, escaping from Stalin and the communist regimes or refusing repatriation uh, behind the Iron Curtain. Therefore, the IRO and a bunch of humanitarian organizations and refugee funds had really a lot of to do. The displaced person camps were meant to host only one nationality. They were separate Latvian, Polish or Ukrainian camps, but in most cases several nationalities were living together. The Czechs and Slovaks ended up in various places. In Germany it was Camp Valka near Nuremberg, Ludwigsburg, Murnau in Austria, we are talking about the camp uh, Wallace in Kufstein, Landeck in Tyrol, Lienz, uh, Wells, and uh, various facilities based in Salzburg, Innsbruck, and uh, other places. Uh, accommodation for refugees met only very basic requirements, I would say. Um, we are talking about um, wooden shacks, former prisoners of war camps, military barracks schools, uh, factories, or even more primitive housing such as tents, train cars, and uh, various provisional uh, type um, of housing. 
prominent Czechoslovak emigres with, uh, let's say, high-level uh, information useful to U.S. intelligence um, were gathered in the so-called Alaska House, uh, in the uh, a villa in the suburb of uh, Frankfurt in Germany. But uh, regular uh, refugees which newly arrived were carefully uh, interviewed and were given some kind of or some degree of protection or uh, they were declared um, ineligible for protection by the RAO. Of course, the atmosphere in the camps was extremely tense in late uh, 1940s and early 1950s because there was a widespread belief that the Cold War would quickly change into um, uh, an armed conflict between the United States and um, the Soviet Union. But uh, as time passed and people remained long months or even years in the camps, uh, sending visa applications and uh, waiting for working permits and transport to, to uh, new homes, uh, the atmosphere has changed uh, gradually. We need to understand that uh, Western Europe still still laid in ruins uh, after World War II. Uh, the economy was painfully slow in rec recovering from the war. Uh, the production in factories uh, stalled and uh, unemployment was high. Uh, the French politics, for example, was convulsed by a permanent constitutional crisis, etc., etc. And suddenly, these the same countries in Western Europe were to be hit by a massive influx of immigrants. Logically, they were not prepared and the population did not fear uh, or did not hide, hide um, their fears and uh, indication. So refugees looked beyond the boundaries of Europe. Uh, a dream destination number one was the United States of America, of course, but the American immigrant quotas was, uh, were very strict at the time. So more and more people were going to uh, Latin America, Australia, uh, New Zealand, which were looking for flesh, blood and experts in a wide range of disciplines. Medical doctors, engineers or craftsmen uh, had opened doors to South Africa, for example, while workers in factories and timber plants were cordially invited to uh, Canada. In my opinion, this life in the displaced person camps uh, deserves much further research. Uh, I would uh, liken it to a unique microcosm where you could have found I don't know, black market, prostitution, violent and boozy clashes, as well as churches, chapels, libraries, schools, kindergartens, sport associations, as um, the most famous Sokol association in the, in the Czech case, uh, scout troops, etc., etc. To make the story short, the life of Czechs and Slovaks in the refugee camps um, was very interesting, and I'm actually gathering materials to write another book uh, on this topic. Uh, in the camps, also the first magazines, brochures, leaflets were published, and also the first seeds of uh, political activity uh, were born. When talking about the Czechoslovak exile, we need to understand that it was not a single entity. Uh, on the contrary, there were many antagonist group and wings, almost unable to uh, talk to each other uh, or to reach any reasonable, uh, reasonable agreement. There were Slovak separatists, of course, following the tradition of the Nazi puppet uh, Slovak state uh, during World War II. There was the so-called Czech National Committee under uh, General Lev Prechala, who was, let's say, the most powerful opponent of Edvard Beneš during the World War II, uh, and who also supported the independence of separate Czech and Slovak state. Uh, there was the let's say Czechoslovak or Czechoslovakist group uh, insisting on the common Czechoslovak future in, in, uh, within one, uh, one state. 
they were supporters of political parties which had been a part of the post-war coalition government led by the communists and also supporters of uh, the political parties which uh, were active before the World War II, but these were not permitted after the war due to their alleged um, collaboration with the Nazis. So after a few years in silence, these uh, parties uh, or these structures came back to life and claimed also the, the, the right to speak about the exile matters. It is clear though that uh, achieving any consensus or agreement on what to do, how to speak with a common language, uh, was almost impossible and uh, different ideas of individuals and groups uh, caused many troubles. Uh, it was clear from the beginning, uh, so from let's say February and March 48, that the exile politics would be wrecked by quarrels rather than constructive debate, uh, but still there were strong attempts to establish a single platform, some kind of umbrella organization of the Czechoslovak democratic exile. The first political event uh, in the exile of any great impact, which also received attention in the Western media, um, was the meeting of more than two dozen uh, former members of Czechoslovak parliament, held uh, on May 28th um, at uh, Saxton Hall in London. The participants of this meeting declared the uh, illegality of uh, the, the coup in February and their determination to fight for uh, the return of, of democracy to, uh, to Czechoslovakia. Moving forward, forward um, complicated negotiations were held in Washington DC, which from autumn 1948 uh, became the new center of um, the anti-communist uh, exile about the intended umbrella organization. And on the February 25th, so just one year after the communist coup, the so-called uh, Council of Czechoslovakia, or Rada Svoboda Československa in Czech, uh, was established in DC. Uh, former mayor of Prague, Peter Zenkel, uh, became its chairman, and many ex-politicians, ex-diplomats, ex-journalists, and former high government or military officials uh, became members of um, the executive committee of, of the council. But again, after a promising start um, and strong support from uh, State Department and um, from the CIA, uh, the activities of the council quickly shrank. Uh, again, the exile leaders had a very, very naive expectation that the council would receive uh, recognition comparable to uh, to that which, which the government in exile had, uh, had during the World War II. Also some tensions still hang in the air. Uh, the result of uh, the February defeat, frustration, fear, and <coughs> unfortunately uh, also um, settling of old scores between political rivals uh, who were not able to understand that they were no longer in power. Uh, in May 1949, Fernand Perutka, the prominent journalist, uh, wrote in a personal letter to a friend. Let me, let me quote. I confess that I'm starting to get scared uh, that the exile suit will lose us all. That's my experience from the first year in the exile. Those people cannot think about anything other than themselves and have no scruples. This did not bother me with the communists and the Nazis. They were enemies. But these are my friends. This is the elite of our democracy. Very sad. End of quote. So the fact that the Council of Czechoslovakia suffered from uh, fragmentation and conflicts 
which were fairly uh, reflected in its activities. And uh, throughout the 50s and the 60s, the council fell apart and reunited again. The composition of power groups within its executive committee were changing, the members were wasting time with endless quarrels, and they were continuously losing uh, the confidence of uh, the exile public and their American uh, donors uh, and supporters. In this, let's say, glasshouse environment of the exile, where leaders of political parties lost the most important thing, the, the, the feedback from the voters, uh, were lacking a clear vision, terms, uh, and uh, working apparatus, it was this backstage negotiations, unfulfilled ambitions, uh, personal animosities, old friendships, and old injustice that formed the basic pillars of the exile politics. So the disagreement between two individuals uh, was automatically uh, considered as a conflict between two groups or two ideological streams, and all of it had uh, devastating consequences in terms of disruption and long periods of uh, inactivity of the council. When the dust settled a bit and we are able to move forward to the latter half of 1950s, we see four or five major centers of exile politics, culture, and social life. I'm talking about Paris, uh, London, Washington DC, and New York, and maybe Chicago, later Sydney, or Ottawa. Uh, because publishing houses and the editorial offices of many periodicals were based there, uh, in addition to the Council of Czechoslovakia, new exile organizations, clubs, and associations were formed. Uh, really, really, the Czechs and the Slovaks abroad uh, demonstrated an enormous desire to associate, to stay in touch with their compatriots, who were also sharing the, the, the same uh, set fate. Some statistics state, state that uh, seven dozens of newspapers, magazines, and newsletters, and nearly 190 Czech institutions uh, operated in the free world after 1948. Uh, we can find exalpolitical uh, parties among them as well. Because the representatives of political, domestic political parties, which had been either dissolved or morphed into a harmless satellites of the Communist Party of Czechoslovakia, tried to pick up their activities in the exile and to rebuild their broken structures. Uh, they worked in a very modest surroundings, of, of course, with a very limited um, funds and lack of personnel. The inner organization, daily operations, uh, ways of communication with their member base, uh, all had to be radically adapted to exile conditions. Uh, party meetings were organized, basic information sheets and brochures were printed and circulated. Uh, the physical headquarters of these parties shifted constantly according to the place of residence of their leaders and uh, acting secretaries. Or there were several simultaneous centers of power, sometimes accepting the authority of the party executive committee or of the chairman, but sometimes composed of an inner opposition group pursuing its own independent policy. So again, the life of these exile entities was often exhausted um, by internal strife, uh, expulsion of uh, dissidents, and berating of the leadership. However, these parties retained a key role in the exile community, and the first initiative started uh, a supranational cooperation came uh, from them. As we can see, uh, there was a Czechoslovak Socialist, uh, Social Democratic Party active in the exile, uh, also the National Socialist Party, which is a, was Czechoslovak National Socialist Party, not the German one, of course. Uh, it was basically the party 
affiliated with uh, President Benesh and uh, Masaryk, or following Masaryk's uh, thoughts. Uh, then there was an agrarian or smallholder party, uh, National Democratic Party, uh, following the ideas of Karel Kramář, who was the main opponent of President Masaryk during the uh, first Czechoslovak Republic, and so on and so on and so on. Uh, the visions of ideal organization of society, the development of individual countries, and the future of the entire European continent, uh, as presented by the parties I just mentioned, the, the Christian Democrats, liberals, socialists, etc., etc., uh, in the exile, they write dramatically. Several, let's say, central themes, uh, such as the overthrow of uh, communist regimes and uh, further peaceful uh, economical and uh, political integration of the European continent, uh, remained a constant across party lines. However, specific steps uh, to achieve these goals and uh, uh, the ideas uh, depended on the ideological beliefs uh, of uh, specific uh, exile politicians. As described earlier, uh, the nascent political parties in exile faced serious difficulties and had no choice but to look um, for allies among like-minded counterparts in other East European exile groups. To be specific, the exile Christian Democrats um, from 10 or 11 countries founded this uh, Christian Democratic Union of Central Europe. Altogether, 18 agrarian, smallholder, or peasant parties resumed their work in exile and agreed to found the International Peasant Union, uh, also sometimes called uh, the Green International. Uh, socialist and uh, social democrats from Czechoslovakia, Poland, Hungary, Bulgaria, uh, Baltic uh, countries uh, had their socialist union of Central Eastern Europe. Uh, the liberals had uh, the liberal democratic uh, union of Central and Eastern Europe. Union workers were able uh, to, to work somehow under the umbrella of the International Center of uh, Free Trade Unions in exile and the list can be easily expanded. Please note that uh, it was not only the professional politicians, let's say, who uh, felt the need to be organized on a supranational level. A number of professional and guild organizations, uh, supranational organizations were founded uh, for writers, journalists, former political prisoners, uh, professors, students, women, etc. Et I'm not sure if you can read uh, the names of uh, some of these. Uh, there were free European sportsmen active in the exile, etc., etc. Uh, the coordination efforts also resulted in uh, to the creation of uh, the so-called uh, Assembly of Captive Euro European Nations, uh, ASEN, in New York, uh, which officially saw the light um, of the day on September 20th, 1954, as a non-incorporated, non-profit company. And this ASEN, this assembly, uh, intended to act as a, let's say, shadow counterbalance to the United Nations. Uh, it was meant to coordinate the management of anti-communist campaigns, to publish news from behind the Iron Curtain, and to generate international support for the liberation of uh, Soviet-ruled parts of Europe. Uh, the structures of ASEM generally followed the structure of uh, the United Nations. It consisted of a general assembly, a general committee, and several working committees, such as political, legal, social, economic, information, and cultural uh, committee. The general sessions were held once a year, usually in September, and these 
functioned as, a, as the sanctioning assemblies through which resolutions were announced and the members of the general committee were elected. Each of the participating nine captive nations, so we are talking about the Albanians, the Bulgarians, uh, the Czechs and Slovaks, or Czechoslovaks, Hungarians, uh, three Baltic nations, Estonians, Latvians, Lithuanians, the Poles, and the Romanians. Uh, so each of, this particip uh, of the participating um, uh, captive nations uh, was, uh, was able to send a 16-member delegation to these uh, ASEAN sessions, uh, where lectures and situational reports on developments in individual countries uh, behind the Iron Curtain were presented, and voting on resolutions and protest notes uh, took place. Uh, the uh, ASEAN assemblies, which took place in New York, <coughs> Uh, to coincide with, with the United Nations General Assembly sessions were uh, frequently also coordinated um, with public demonstrations and like to raise their profile and to increase the, the volume of their uh, message. Between 1956 and 1963, uh, uh, ASEAN rented a two-story building owned by the Carnegie Endowment on the First Avenue, directly opposite uh, the United Nations headquarters. So the United Nations delegates from communist countries could not avoid the unpleasant view on, on posters and billboards uh, hanging across the street that alerted the passers-by on the ongoing Red Terror and uh, Soviet imperialism. You, you can see the poster uh, uh, speaking on, on uh, Hungarian uprising in, in uh, late 1956. The Czechs and the Slovaks uh, were an integral part of these uh, supranational exile structures. They held many leading positions in the organizations I, I mentioned. Uh, their voice influenced uh, the others. But of course, in the eyes of the domestic communist propaganda, they were considered as traitors, losers, uh, a tool of American imperialists who were paid by gladiators from Wall Street uh, to spread the fear and terror uh, and lies through uh, radio for Europe to Czechoslovakia, uh, pushed by their unreal desire to, to return to, uh, to power. Also, Radio Free Europe, founded in, in um, 1950 and uh, starting to broadcast in 1951, at least the, the Czechoslovak mm -hmm. uh, was next to the Assembly of Capital European Nations, uh, one of the most um, important uh, tools of uh, anti-communist propaganda, uh, supported by, by the American government. Uh, and uh, this negative image um, of exile uh, politicians remained uh, for decades and it's still visible. In spite of their important role and activities, uh, for example later in the 1970s, uh, the Council of Free Czechoslovakia was involved in, Hel in Helsinki Accords. Uh, they established contacts with Charta 77, uh, the most important dissent organization in, uh, or movement in Czechoslovakia, etc. etc. Uh, in spite of this, uh, the Czech historiography forgot these people and still underestimates their importance, I would say. Uh, for me, as again a historian and political scientist, it is a very interesting uh, research path full of uh, new findings and surprises because the archives and libraries in the United States, in Britain, in France, in Germany uh, are still hiding a large amount of various materials and it happens fairly often that uh, I'm the first Czech researcher uh, who has ever seen this. So that inspires me and uh, gives me the strength to, to continue uh, with the research and hopefully more and more researchers will find the inspiration in the Cold War exile studies. 
So uh, I hope that also some of the University of Wisconsin students will follow my path and uh, because it's definitely worth it and I thank you for your attention.